As you know, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system. I found that it helps people relax and can support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences, which is now proud to introduce the Plus CBD Relief line of soft gels. Plus CBD Relief is the ideal way to help promote a healthy inflammatory response. Plus CBD Relief is doctor-formulated with recovery-supporting ingredients, including CBD, CBDA, and Levagen plus PEA. Relief soft gels help address minor everyday soreness, support joint function, and encourage recovery following strenuous activity. All Plus CBD products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. And with a 90-day satisfaction guarantee, you have nothing to lose. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com Hoffman and use coupon code Hoffman30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman for Plus CBD's Relief Soft Gels. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today, we're going to take a deep dive on the cancer world because uh, our guest is uh, one of my favorite go-to experts on the subject. Uh, I've actually interviewed him uh, several times over many decades. Uh, I might have interviewed him uh, early on uh, as early as the 1980s. Uh, because he's yeah. been on the cancer scene for a long time. He's medical writer Ralph Moss, Ph.D., and he's written or edited 12 books and four film documentaries on questions related to cancer research and treatment. Uh, he is the former science writer and assistant director of public affairs at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York uh, in the 1970s. He worked in the belly of the beast. Uh, he uh, was there... Uh, essentially hired to uh, promote advances in cancer research and treatment. Uh, but since then, he's uh, taken somewhat of a critical view, independently evaluating the claims of conventional as well as non-conventional cancer treatments all over the world. Uh, and he is also uh, the um, editor uh, and uh, chief of the Moss Reports. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, that's a very, very important research uh, for cancer patients who are baffled at the profusion of alternatives that sometimes confront them uh, when they deal with this uh, very, very uh, scary disease. So his new book, Just Out, is Cancer Incorporated. Uh, in 1980, he wrote, read a book called The Cancer Industry. So he's been on uh, the cancer scene for a long time. And uh, Ralph, you know, it, it's an exciting time in the world of cancer research and treatments. Uh, breakthroughs, mm -hmm. uh, so to yeah. speak, are being heralded uh, almost daily. We seem to be closing in on uh, cancer with uh, precision medicine. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of controversy because... Uh, some of these therapies uh, come at great cost, uh, render patients uh, very sick with side effects, uh, and maybe not as effective as they've been touted. So, uh, uh, you know, give us the inside story on this. What is your, what is your book uh, highlighting? Yeah, so um, I think the, the most startling thing for me was realizing 
to what to what degree the oncology profession that's to say the leading lights of of cancer treatment have been undermined and corrupted by the pharmaceutical industry so at, i started the book it was going to be like a brief report on the clinical trials and whether should one should go into clinical consider going into clinical mm-hmm. trials if you have cancer and what are the pitfalls of the clinical trials and i had sort of a a spiel <laughs> that i had worked up over you know 40 years about this and i had a kind of new thought i had a kind of nuanced view what i discovered was that there is a government database that shows how much money individual doctors are getting from pharmaceutical companies and the money is broken out not only by year but also by what the purpose of the money is so uh you you see some doctors are getting vast sums of money from drug companies not just to do studies on the drug on the the products of the industry but just in their pocket just for their own personal use and sometimes those doctors are the same doctors who are issuing grandiose proclamations to the public and to the medical profession on the effectiveness effectiveness of the those the drugs of those companies so, so in other you, words would you say that in, a, in effect that there's uh, to put it mildly a conflict of interest or perverse incentives yeah. to uh, introduce yes. uh, spectacular new supposedly breakthrough yes. therapies that can be very expensive lucrative for the doctors maybe showing some marginal benefits for patients but uh, not what they're cracked up to be uh, yes absolutely i i would even go further and say that when somebody takes personal money i mean money for their own just for their own private use um and is then testing a drug or a treatment from the same company or the same group that's uh, giving them the money, then they're putting themselves in great moral risk, and it could—it looks like bribery, basically. And yeah, uh, let's call it—call it, call it what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. And so this came to a head about le- just just about two years ago, when the physician in chief at Memorial Sloan Kettering, my alma mater in New York, um, he was fa- found to have to be taking three million dollars <laughs> in money from d- drug companies and then touting those products e- e- just to a, um, a a ludicrous degree and it wound up on the front page of the New York Times and the the CEO of Memorial Sloan Kettering demanded his resignation and he he resigned he later, wound up as the um, vice president and chief of cancer research for a giant pharmaceutical mm-hmm. company, and he's more comfortable the revol- in that. The revolving door really works. A- absolutely, absolutely. revolving door between the research community and the so-called dark side of, of big pharma. And, um, but, you know, the, the, the attention of the world momentarily was focused on this one instance of somebody taking a huge sum of money from the company whose products he was he was supposedly evaluating and then touting. So this was my sort of my 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 breakthrough moment in terms of this book when I looked at this government uh, website, Open Payments. It's called uh, Open Payment Data, and I realized, I mean, this is just hiding in plain sight. 
And yet I didn't know about it. And I would say that 99 out of 100 people don't know about this. And yet it, there it is um, for all to see. Now, I would say there are cir circumstances in which it is justified to take for doctors and res for researchers to take money from drug companies. Mm -hmm. But that would mostly be if, they, if there's no other way for them to do the research, sometimes their institution has to take the money. It's a perverse system because the, the uh, drug companies basically get to evaluate their own products, which is kind of yeah. crazy. And FDA, uh, it plays a very passive role in this and actually loses more and more credibility every day. And, um, and so, there are still v tremendous flaws in the clinical testing system. But what really, really got me going was the fact that people were just taking doctors and, you know, oncologists in particular, just taking vast sums of money, um, to come out with statements and so forth that the drug company wanted. Now, the, getting back to my original focus, which was the clinical trial system, um, uh, of course, we know clinical trials have a very sordid history. Uh, there were a lot of human experimentation done in the guise of clinical trials, and I'm not just talking about Nazi, mm -hmm. uh, you know, horrors of concentration camps, but I mean in the United States, the Tuskegee uh, experiment where uh, African American men with syphilis were basically withheld uh, antibiotic treatment that would have cured them for the sake of the completing the experiment and mm -hmm. and many many died uh just uh, just as martyrs to science without even knowing that was going on so i'd say we have a very very bad history when it comes to clinical trials but what's really important is that most clinical trials of cancer drugs do not measure things of benefit to patients mm -hmm. and i'm sure this sounds crazy i mean yep. uh, why do the trial right if mm -hmm. it's not going to benefit the patient. But what benefits patients in cancer is it's one of three things. First of all, cure, of course. Yep. If you can cure the disease, you better you outright cure. That's very rare. Second thing would be um, an increase in the overall survival. When I say overall survival, I mean the actual time mm -hmm. that people live in the aggregate. Right. So, uh, so, we, so, we, so we're not talking, for example, I mean, we, we have yeah. instances where people survive a cancer, but then succumb to the debilitation that's caused yeah. by the treatment, and their life yes. uh, span is not extended. And, and then, you, you know, you're probably going right. to talk a little bit about quality of life, too, as, as, right. as part of this. Right. So, so what they usually are measuring, when they tell you that, and you have to drill down and you, when you're studying these things, because they'll, they'll say that the drug increased survival, they don't usually mean su survival by the dictionary definition or by, mm -hmm. by the average person or even what the average physician would think survival mean. To us, survival is the same as overall survival, meaning mm -hmm. you actually would have, you, on average, the patients in the study would have lived uh, months and years longer than if they hadn't taken the drug. That's not at all what they mean by survival. Most times they mean progression-free survival mm -hmm. uh, or or relapse-free survival. In other words, a period of time during which they can't measure the disease being present or progressing uh, for the patient. But 
if the if two people get the same treatment, one of them it, it, the treatment delays the uh, progression of the disease by let's say six months, but they die. That patient dies a year after starting the treatment. The second patient doesn't have any change in the progression. They just go downhill, and they also die one year after starting the treatment. They this gets registered as a success for the drug mm-hmm. because they're saying. That look in the patient number one, they got the, the the drug. They had progression free survival. Yes, but they didn't live any longer. They, they so also very, measure response on the basis of uh, regression, cancer regression. Yes. You know that there's correct. Or, or re- they use the word response, or they yes. use the word regression. And you actually have drugs that are being approved on that basis. And these drugs are are very very uh, potent drugs with a lot of side effects uh, that yes. uh, are extremely expensive. That cost maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they will produce a response demonstrably. Yes. But how does that translate to well being of the patient? It doesn't. I, I mean, in most cases, it doesn't. You, you can have a response. A response is a shrinkage of tumor. So if you can shrink the tumor burden by 30%, that's considered a success. But does the response actually correlate uh, with increased survival? It, there is no, it usually doesn't. It may or it may not. But they're so focused on the size of the tumor but the size, but the tumor is made up of many different kinds of cells, and shrinking it. I mean, in some to some res, in some respects, you're also shrinking the the white blood cells that are trying to kill the the cancer. So it's a little bit like Vietnam, like we had to destroy the village in order to save it. Mm-hmm. So yes, you can you can destroy the tumor, De- but you have defoliation with the Agent Orange you know, Abs- <laughs> strategies absolutely. like carpet bombing and so on. Yeah. Right. Right, but it doesn't correlate with actually, in most cases, in many mm-hmm. cases, it doesn't correlate with actually increased overall survival. So there's a shell game going on because they're telling you, oh, this drug, uh, actually impre- increases survival. It doesn't increase survival. They're telling you we got a response, but the response doesn't, doesn't necessarily correlate with a- any actual patient benefit. And then you know you ha- you have the side effects which you you've mentioned which can be can be mild or can be terrible horrendous or even result in death and that is there's a ways to fudge that also because it only only if the person dies within 30 days of the time that they mm-hmm. complete complete the treatment does that get considered to be a treatment death but you know you could undermine you could affect somebody's kidneys or liver with a drug and they could die a year later or two years later it doesn't get usually get chalked up mm-hmm. to an effect of the drug or or it, as an indirect effect you can have uh, patients who are treated aggressively for prostate cancer sometimes with uh, hormonal therapies and yes. the cancer is arrested but they, these men uh you know in their in their 70s or 80s uh, completely lose their mojo uh, yes. They become flabby, frail, uh, yes. devitalized, and then they die of cardiovascular disease yes. uh, in an accelerated fashion. That's, I think, been well right. demonstrated. Yes. Yes, something that we're, you know, we're, many of us are very aware, aware of the, the, the possibility of that. I had prostate cancer myself, as you know, and I avoided all surgery and, radi- and radiation and just was treated with cryoablation, which is a a relatively mm-hmm. mild outpatient procedure to destroy the tumors with a cold, cold mm-hmm. probes. Mm-hmm. 
and um, I think the results are are very much better when you do well, that, and you avo- avoid the worst side effects of the conventional treatment. You, you know, and that brings up an issue because uh, do patients necessarily get access to the best therapies, or is it just kind of cookie cutter? And do patients really have to take uh, the initiative to uh, question? Uh, established protocols and maybe find their own uh, path as as you did uh, seeking you know a therapy that's maybe yeah. a little uh, off the main menu yes I, I I believe the latter you know and I my main job is that I run the scientific side of most reports which are um, which are detailed reports on both conventional and complementary and alternative treatments for uh, about 30 different kinds of cancer. So we keep these, maintain these, keep them, uh, keep them, uh, up to date and really try to, uh, drill down so people can have an unbiased view of what it is that the conventional treatment will do for or to them. And also how good is the basis on which one could recommend alternative type of treatments? I, I'd say with prostate, I got very lucky. Because there was a hospital in New York, NYU Langone, to give them a, 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 a an unsolicited plug, uh, where the doctors practiced cryoablation and were willing to treat me, even though my tumors were considered to be high risk, uh, they were willing to treat me uh, for my condition with, as I say, coming up on five years now for me with, with excellent mm-hmm. results. So it was um, a little off label. In other words, it wasn't like the yes. cookbook therapy for your stage and type right. of cancer. So, but it, it was thought that right. under the circumstances, this might be a more conservative approach, uh, less devastating to you right. and perhaps as effective. Right. I mean, Medicare covered it and FDA has approved it. It's just that the, the general medical community, the, the, the uro, uro, urology community considers it still to be experimental, although it's been in use since, uh, cryoablation has been in use since 1859. Mm-hmm. Admittedly getting more and more sophisticated, but amazingly it was demonstrated at the great, um, Crystal Palace exhibit wow. in London in 1859. Wow. So it's been around, but it just hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves. So, you know, I think that's one example out of many of um, so-called alternative treatments that are really have great potential, but never get explored and adequately uh, tested, funded, uh, because they don't have the same economic of value mm-hmm. to industry that um, that some of these other treatments have, and I, I'm focused on you know this money aspect of cancer. I have been for 40 years since I wrote Cancer Syndrome and Cancer Industry in the 1980s. Um, I've been focused on this because I think that that gets overlooked. People think that there is a, that treatments are decided based upon the effect, safety, and effectiveness of the treatment. There's another filter. They have to pass through. Yep. They have to make money for a big corporation. That's really what it's about. And the, and the profits to be had, especially with the new um, targeted drugs, so-called precision drugs, immunotherapy drugs, is phenomenal. Uh, these drugs are now uh, selling on average for uh, $150,000 mm-hmm. per 
charge per patient. Yeah, you know, it's really but, weird. I mean, sometimes I'm watching, you know, cable news and I'll see an ad for uh, K-Truda. Uh, K-Truda yes. is uh, an immunotherapy drug that's used, I believe, for lung cancer and certain yes. other cancers. But you have to have a certain, yes. you know, genetic uh, component to the cancer to make it kind right. of lock and key. But I'm thinking like, yeah. you know, here I am. I'm just like minding my own business. I don't have cancer. They're showing me this ad. Like how many people out there actually fit the criteria for k Truda, you know what maybe you know, a million people two million people are watching yeah. this broadcast maybe yeah. there's like six or eight or ten but the profits are so great uh as to justify uh running this ad for a very niche thing you know we're not talking about you know charmin you know toilet paper right. uh or uh you know uh selling uh, Oreo cookies, something that everybody right. <laughs> you know, would Absolutely. use. So, but it's interesting that, that there it's is phenomenal. so much money to be made that they run these very niched ads for, you know, like, my goodness, I don't have Key, lung cancer. I don't need this. Keytruda, um, last year, the sales on Keytruda was $8.8 billion mm-hmm. for that one drug. And, and that's because they can charge 150000 up to $1 million for immune therapy, if you use combination of drugs over a period of time, it can come to a million dollars. There's one drug, it's a ki- unusual kind of drug, um, it's called Chimera. It, mm-hmm. It's what's called, uh, it's a type of immune therapy. And they're charging $475,000 for one infusion of the drug. And Carl June at University of Pennsylvania, who developed the drug, has written that the actual cost to the company of this drug is twenty thousand dollars. I I mm-hmm. don't know whether he's exaggerating or not, but if you think they uh, that's about five percent, that's like a ninety five percent markup. Okay, uh, if uh, between between twenty thousand, and that would be ext- it's extremely unusual because that drug has to be it's a kind of vaccine that has to be made up individually very custom. for the patient. Yeah, it's a custom. Most drugs, yeah, custom have a very very yeah. Absolutely. Cardi cell therapy, they call it. But most drugs um, are just spit out of a machine, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and the and the markup, I mean, to get from uh, an, an inexpensive medication to $150,000 per patient and there and it's probably a few bucks for them to produce it. And yep. then, of course, the research and they would say, well, we have to do all this research in order right. to to make the drug. Yes, but most of the research is done by at, at a taxpayer's expense. So most of the mm-hmm. actual research is it's done the at NIH, the NIH right. exactly. or, or people the NIH is paying in different laboratories. So we pay twice. We're gouged twice. First, we have to pay for the doing of the research. Secondly, the research is then exploited by the drug company. And then we pay again these phenomenal prices, all because of one provision in one bill from about 20, 20 years ago where uh, they uh, they snuck this through literally in the middle of the night at 3 a.m., they called an emergency meeting of the Senate and they passed this <laughs> bill with this provision that said that the government could not negotiate with the drug companies over the price of drugs, that Medicare, Medicaid, mm-hmm. VA can't negotiate. That one provision, the 3 a.m. provision passed by one vote and – because of that, that that's worth untold billions of dollars to the drug industry to get that pushed through. And the drug industry um, maintains somewhere between 
1,300 and 1,500 lobbyists full-time in Washington, just the drug industry. And so they've got about three lobbyists per congressperson. And they lean on and lean on, and they're, and they're bribing these Congress people with, and you can look at a different database to see how much the Congress people right. are, are being paid. Of course, I mean, yes, it's a lot of money, but it's a tiny fraction of what it's worth to the drug industry to basically corrupt the government in this way. And that's why, you know, we're in a, we're in a, a terrible state, terrible mess, really, when it comes to our medical system, but it's, but especially when it comes yeah, to cancer. It's a real, it's a real cost driver. Uh, you're, uh, book in 1980 was entitled "The Cancer Industry." Now the the yeah. you know the, the current book is "Cancer Incorporated." Yeah, uh, is this a different book than what you might have written 30 or 40 years ago? And you know, surely, uh, you know, we've been engaged in the so-called war on cancer. It was uh, it was declared by Richard Nixon back in yes. I guess the 70s? And right. you know, our our research and treatment of cancer has been portrayed as a steady, persistent series of advances. Uh, the immunotherapy, uh, and CAR T cell therapy, uh, these are touted as being, uh, you know, the decisive breakthroughs in our war against cancer. Do you, do you, are they being oversold? Yes. Well, it's complicated. So immunotherapy is my great hope in terms of cancer treatment. I mean, I have a number of hopes, but, but that in particular, because the first immunotherapy, uh, which was invented in New York for cancer, which was invented in New York City um, at at what's now Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center, uh, was the the um, mixed bacterial vaccine of William B. Coley, mm-hmm. and he started these toxins. Mm-hmm. Yes, he started in the eighteen early eighteen nineties. He went on until the mid nineteen thirties. His son Brad picked that up, and he went on until 1963. So basically, they were giving the Coley's toxins from essentially 1893 until 1963. So for 70 years, this was given legally. Uh, it was listed as a, dr- as a standard drug. It was um, enormously effective, considering the times and considering how advanced the cases were, how desperate some of these cases were. Um, it's the great untold story. And my son, Ben, and my grandson, Jacob, and I have worked for the last uh, year and a half on a film. We have a documentary film coming out called Immunotherapy, The Battle Within. It's the battle within the you, the person between the cancer and the immune system. It's also the battle within the field of immunotherapy between the low cost of uh, fever therapy of William B. Coley. Which is not really patentable. I mean, it's not, you know, you can't really harness a profit potential for something that's... No, no. And the company that was producing the Coley's toxins up until a few years ago gave up because they couldn't come up with a couple of million dollars to do a good manufacturing process plant to make the the toxins. Remember I said that the the competing immunotherapy, meaning uh, Keytruda, the immune checkpoint inhibitor, made $8.8 billion in sales mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, last year. Um, and they and this company making toxins couldn't come up with uh, 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 one ten-thousandth that amount mm-hmm. of money to support the toxins for the simple reason that anybody with a good uh, education in microbiology can make it. I had a, a researcher tell me 
she could make it in her sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, the, co the cost of coles to provide coles toxins, yeah. even today, be to, uh, for a patient per patient would be no more than twenty five hundred dollars. It's like bathtub gin, kind of. You know, just follow, <laughs> right. follow the recipe. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to be, <clears throat> you have to follow the the knowledge that the people who made this are uh, starting in the in the uh, early part of the 20th century, they knew how to make it. We have certain formulas that uh, Martha Tracy developed at New York Hospital. She made a, a, the outstanding formulation, she and her, her mentor, so that we know how to make these. We as a society know yeah. how to make these but, things. But there's no commercial imperative. You know, like, no. how are you going to get it? A, how are you going to characterize it? How is it going to yeah. be accepted by you? Because they don't really like to approve... You know, kind of mixed biologicals that are poorly characterized. They like to characterize okay. molecules that you can, yes. you know, put in a safe and patent and, you know, Correct. you're off to the races. We got to pause because we divide our podcast into two parts, but uh, we're uh, in a fascinating discussion uh, with uh, uh, an expert in the field of uh, cancer uh, since 1977. Um, Ralph Moss has been empowering cancer patients with uh, the Moss reports. Uh, he's been an observer on the cancer scene, uh, and uh, he's a critic of uh, both uh, conventional and certain alternative practices alike. He's an equal opportunity uh, critic because uh, uh, we need that. You know, someone who is uh, not incentivized monetarily uh, to promote one or another therapy, but can critically evaluate them in an objective fashion. That's what he does uh, in uh, his book, Cancer Incorporated. It's a new book just out. Uh, we'll continue our discussion in part two. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.